The subject matter contained in this presentation is based on biblical principles and designed to give you accurate and authoritative information with regard to the subject matter covered. It is provided with the understanding that neither the presenter nor the broadcaster is engaged to render legal, accounting, or other professional advice. Since your situation is fact-dependent, you may wish to additionally seek the services of an appropriately licensed legal, accounting, real estate, or investment professional. No one can serve two masters. He will either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you shall eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds in the sky. They do not sow or reap. They gather nothing into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are not you more important than they? Can any of you by worrying add a single moment to your lifespan? Why are you anxious about clothes? Learn from the way the wildflowers grow. They do not work or spin, but I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was clothed like one of them. If God so clothes the grass of the field, which grows today and is thrown into the oven tomorrow, will he not much more provide for you, O oh, you of little faith? So do not worry and say, What are we to eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what are we to wear? All these things the pagans seek. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be given you besides. Do not worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will take care of itself. Sufficient for a day is its own evil. This is Radio Wave Medjinomics with your host, a friend of Medjugorje. You know when you eat a steak, and then you eat a steak in another place, which one's better than the other? We know when we're being fed something good, flavorable on our palate, and that works the same way for the spiritual palate. You know when you're being fed. I listen to many different people, sometimes Protestant preachers, secular people, even people who don't believe in God. I can always take something from them to apply it to the messages and to turn it into a spiritual palate or meal that's pleasing. Everything is a lesson if you look through things through the template of related words in the scriptures. This past week, I tuned into one guy who is a preacher. I've heard different times. And he's pretty good, but he was spot on. Very, very good 30-minute broadcast. And it's a good steak to eat, and I think you'll enjoy it. We're in a time right now where we have to look at the lay people because this is what our lay's coming to. 
She's calling us to be apostles. And of course, this is about Medjinomics, and Medjinomics is about the economy. But when you live the commandments, when you're faithful to the commandments, you flourish. God will anoint you. God would grant you a protection as well as well-being. And our lady just told us this. Little children live heaven here on earth so that it would be good for you. And may the commandments of God be a light on your way. It's just that simple. We don't have to be complex in our walk. So economically, health-wise, life-wise, all depends on how you live the commandments. It doesn't mean you won't be sick, but everything you have and what it afflicts or what does not afflict you can be always for the glory of God. So in the book Nehemiah, this was a layman. He was third down from the king. He was called a cupbearer. And he could appear in the presence of the queen, which is interesting because we're in the presence of Our Lady every day. So this pastor reader goes into the book of Nehemiah about who he was. He was a singular purpose in what he lived for, and that was for the welfare of the people. He had a real practical sense. He combined that with his deep faith. This is what I was looking for today. He was selfless in his service to a community that would test any leader. Nehemiah was generous, and he dedicated his talent in the service of God. And this is what Our Lady is showing us to do. Shows it here, it shows you to do, and all those who are following Our Lady. And Nehemiah's book is really an autobiography of his life. He's an undiminished force for laymen today. So how do we relate to that? You can relate it to yourself. You can relate it to the mission of Our Lady. You can relate it to what's happening in in our country today because Nehemiah had to wake up the people because they've lost their moral direction. And because of that, he realized how to bring them back and restore them as a people by restoring the walls of Jerusalem to protect the people. We see this in our nation right now. So his whole drive and force was to build the wall. From there, he built the city. From rebuilding the city and its restoration, he brought about restoration with the people who turned toward God. So without any other ado, we'll go into this, and you'll understand it fuller from Pastor Reader. Nehemiah is a very simple outline. The first seven chapters is Nehemiah rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem. The second part of the book, chapters 8 through 13, is Nehemiah rebuilding the city itself. The people and the city itself. How does he rebuild the wall? And then from rebuilding the wall, how does he rebuild the city? That's the way the book falls out, and that's the way that we'll go through it. But let's take a look at Nehemiah. Just all I want to do is introduce Nehemiah to you, and let's start moving toward those three objectives, the roadmap to how are facilities used to accomplish ministry, and how are they put in place in a way that honors the Lord? How can we see Christ in the book of Nehemiah, and how can we have the roadmap as to how God's people enter into this spiritual war for the capturing of the souls of men and women, and capturing every thought unto the obedience of Jesus? 
Jesus Christ? Well, I believe the first thing to do is just introduce you to the man. First of all, the first thing I want to tell you about Nehemiah is that he was a man of God. Now, that stands out because uh, his very name has God's name. That that A-H at the end is a part of the name of God, Yahweh. And so he has that there. He is a man of God. But it's very clear. I mean, did you see what happened? Here's it. He comes, his brother Hanani comes, and he says this. He, he wants to know about the city of God, and he wants to know about the people of God, and he wants to know their condition. Well, Hanani tells him, he says, well, let me tell you, they are in distress, they're in shame, they're also the walls that Nebuchadnezzar destroyed over a hundred years ago, they're still down, the gates are burned, they are burned up, and uh, they are not there, so they stand helpless, in shame, and in distress. That's their condition. So what does he do? Look with me in the next verse, verse 4. Nehemiah 1.4. As soon as I heard these words, he didn't make a plan, what did he do? I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Where did he go? He went to God. He's a man of God. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you, even I. And my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you. We have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you have commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the people. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though you're dispersed, be under the farthest skies. I will gather them from there and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell, dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. What man? I was the cupbearer to the king. He's speaking of Artaxerxes the first, where he was the cupbearer to Artaxerxes. It's a man of God. As soon as he hears this, he is overwhelmed. The book of Nehemiah only focuses on one year of Nehemiah's ministry there. Just one year specifically focuses on the 52 days it took to rebuild the wall itself. And it begins to give us some dynamics and some lessons. And we see, first of all, that, that God sent a leader and this leader was a man of God. Now, he was an aggressive man of God. He was aggressive. He was a true leader. And he would stay the course and he would be persistent. He was a passionate man of God. He hears the condition. What does he do? He sits down and he weeps and he repents. He repents of his own sin. He calls the people to repent. And no matter who comes against him, the enmity that's against him, he stays the course with passion and persistence. Now, he's a rough man of God. He's an imperfect man of God. He'll even, will even slip into a time when he fell into a little cursing. And more than that, he got upset with one leader. You know what he did to him? Well, you know, when I was growing up, one of my granddaddies used to tell me when I'd act up, he'd say to me, son, if you don't straighten up, I'm going to snatch you bald-headed. 
Well, that's exactly what Nehemiah did. He snatched one bald-headed when he got upset with him. So he's not a perfect leader. He's got some rough edges. But he's a man of God who loves God, and he's a man of God who desires to serve God. And so he, so that we see him in this book. By the way, Ezra and Nehemiah were once one book. In fact, first and second chronicles, Ezra and Nehemiah were one book. And then they put out first and second chronicles to give you the foundation of God's blessing. Ezra, how he brought the word of God to the people of God. And then Nehemiah becomes this focused area where they begin to teach all about him. So here is Nehemiah. The this man of God, but he's also not only a man of God, he is a, and by the way, a leader. Uh, let me tell you how he's a leader. Number one, his father's Hakaliah. We don't know anything about him. He, but we know he's a leader. Why? Because he's a cupbearer to the king. Now, let me explain. That does not mean he had a napkin over his arm and brought the cup in. This is the guy that was responsible for the life of the king. He was the third most important man in the kingdom. Isn't that interesting? How a man of God can serve and be desirable in a pagan empire as a leader. So he is a leader who is a statesman. He becomes, secondly, the governor of the province between Persia and Egypt, who were then trying to take over Persia. He's the guy that's entrusted. He's even allowed to rebuild their walls with no fear of what he will do. He's trustworthy. He's a statesman. He's a governor. And he's a leader in what we could see as the church in the Old Testament. He becomes a leader of God's people. And to be a leader of God's people, he doesn't disengage from the world to be, have an impact for God there. And when he has an impact for God, he doesn't sell out to the world as he ministers to the world. And he's faithfully leading the people of God into the world for the glory of God. It's really an interesting guy of unbelievable dimensions. And he's got a heart for God. His heart for God is absolutely a passionate. In fact, here's what you need to know about Nehemiah as a heart for God. Nehemiah has such a heart for God. And I want you to understand this about him as a leader. His leadership is not a matter of, well, I went to the leadership conference and got the techniques. You, here's what you're going to see. Did you know 16 times he says this? My God. He has, he's not only a man of God, he's got a heart for God. He is my God. And this, this heart for God just comes through in powerful ways as he, um, as he engages in devotion to the Lord, in the discipline of serving the Lord, it is, and here's the key, as with a heart for God, here's what I want you to see. Nehemiah, as a leader, his leadership flows from his relationship with God. In other words, his leadership is an overflow of his fellowship with God. His leadership is an overflow of fellowship with God. Therefore, his leadership doesn't bring people to him, but moves people to worship God. His leadership is the overflow of his relationship with God, my God. Therefore, the effect of his leadership is not people coming to him, but through him, people coming to worship God. So where are we headed with this? Let me give you three takeaways in conclusion. Here's the first one. As we go through the book of Nehemiah and make our way through it, I'm making my way through it with great anticipation. 
And the anticipation I have in going through the book of Nehemiah is because as we look at these roadmaps, how do we as the people of God engage the opposition in this world in a way that we're winning people and spreading the kingdom of God? How is it that we, what can we learn from this? And how do we engage in, a, what's the roadmap that takes us through the whole issue of the property and, and the facilities and that for coming generations to, to put in place facilities that facilitate ministry? Well, I believe one of the things I'm anticipating with you is that as we go through here, we're going to see about five themes that I think are going to be very helpful. Number one, we're going to learn about leadership. How does leadership flow from fellowship with God and what does it flow to? We're going to learn basic biblical principles of leadership by looking at Nehemiah, the man of God with a heart for God. Secondly, we're going to be able to see how the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man and his moral agency are not two contradictory poles that we have to sell out to one or the other, but actually two threads woven into the fabric of life. So you you remember what we just read in Nehemiah chapter 2? What did it say? God will give us success. So they strengthen their hands for the work. Their confidence in the sovereignty of God did not lead to passivity and carelessness, but their efforts in strengthening their hands was not what they depended upon. They depended upon God and his strength upon them. It was his strength that strengthened them. What we will continually see is how the sovereignty of God was foundational and their responsibility, a response to God, was operational. The two will be worked together. In the name of being confident in God, it doesn't lead you to passivity and carelessness. God will get, here's what he'll say in that passage that we referred to in terms of the, the warfare. He said this, God will give us the victory. Now each one of you bring a sword to the wall. Their trust was God give the victory, but pick up your sword. They understood how these two things, that the same God who has ordained the end has ordained the means. I embrace the means and my trust that God will bring it to the proper end. Man proposes, God disposes. The second, third thing we're going to learn is the priority of prayer and fasting. He finds out that God's people are in distress and they have shame. The walls are down and the gates are burned. So what does he do? He doesn't come up with a plan. He goes to his knees. And he engages not simply in prayer, prayer and what? Fasting. Question. When was the last time you and I fasted? When was the last time? Now, you don't need to announce it because basically it's something that's a private matter. But I'm not sure that if this isn't one of the most neglected means of... I am not talking about a health technique. I'm not talking about dieting. (laughs) I'm talking about being so moved by the impact of sin that we go to our knees. God, even the necessities of life have no taste for me. I'm seeking you. I am seeking you. He was moved to prayer and fasting. So we're going to see the priority of prayer and fasting. Fourthly, we're going to see the primacy of preaching and teaching God's word. His whole thing, his whole point will be to support Ezra, the teacher. And when the wall is built, Ezra comes forth to teach that God's word is right at the core. They are holding fast to the word of God and it's being preached and it's being taught. I mean, even to the point that they love God's word. We try to 
God willing, from a true heart, imitate that. But it's here in the book of Nehemiah that gives us our tradition that in when the word is preached, it is first read. And when the, the book of Nehemiah tells us that when they opened the, the word of God, the people stood, for they knew they were about to hear God. This is his word. It's the truth. The primacy of the preaching and teaching of God's word. And then the pinnacle of worship. Why did God make me? Why did God save me? Why do I still breathe right now? Why is my heart beating to the praise of the glory of His grace? The pinnacle of life is the worship of God. And He's going to teach them, folks, something that we need to grasp. I know that we need to connect to the culture. We have to speak the language. of I understand that. But there is something about worship in the Bible that's holy other from culture. That's why he said, take my people out three days. Pharaoh said, well, we'll let them worship here. No, three days out, get them here. There is something sacred, different. It's not a Starbucks moment. It's not one more dial on the entertainment calendar of my life. It is this special moment when God's people have assembled out of their love for Christ and one another, inviting any and all who desire to come in, but we have come before Him to give Him praise that He might be exalted. And we desire to do so in spirit and in truth. Our reverence totally saturated with our joy. Our joy doesn't lead us, lead us to triviality, and our reverence doesn't lead us to morbidity. It is the joy and the reverence of God's people that are married in the moment where they bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and encourage one another as the day draws near. Assembling together for the praise of God. Well, that gives me the anticipation of some of the themes that we're going to look at. But let me give you a second thing. The second thing is that not only is uh, the second thing is for you and I to understand the real objective. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here because we're going to spend a lot of time here. And here is the real objective. Uh, Nehemiah's objective is not to build a wall. Nehemiah's objective is not to hang a gate. Nehemiah's objective, you can see it in the outline. He rebuilds the wall. What's the last half of the book? He rebuilds the city. He rebuilds the wall to rebuild the city. When he's rebuilding the wall, he's using the moment of rebuilding the wall to rebuild the people to rebuild the city. The wall is not the end. The wall is not the objective. It is a, it's a wonderful thing to have. It facilitates God's protection upon them, the uh, the gathering around the temple, all of those things it does. But the objective of Nehemiah is not to build a wall or hang a gate, it's to rebuild a people, to rebuild a city that they might worship God. The first seven chapters, rebuilding the wall. The last chapters, rebuilding the city. In the middle of it, chapter 7 says three different times, the wall was rebuilt, the wall was rebuilt, the wall was rebuilt. So what did they do in chapter 
chapter 8, the people of God who had been so affected in the process assembled and they shouted, Amen, Amen. They read the Word. They sung praises to God. They fell upon their knees with prayer. The whole purpose was to bring them to the pinnacle of worship as the city of God. That was the whole purpose. So if I may go ahead and say in anticipation... As much as I'm looking forward to seeing those thousands of kids in that barn and that children's worship center and that adult education space and all of those things, that is not the objective. The objective is as you walk through this, you as the people of God will have great joy in being a part of what God is doing and seeing what God does in you and your family. It's not only facilitating ministry, it's facilitating the growth of the people who are engaged in providing the facilities. These people from chapter 1, what are they? They are in distress and shame. Nehemiah comes that their distress and shame. It said, he's asked Hanani, what's the condition of the people? Distress, shame, walls are down, gates are burned. This is what he says. All right. After prayer and fasting, he said, we'll build the gates, rebuild, hang that, we'll hang the gates, rebuild the wall to deal with the distress and shame so that no longer is the shame of their sin and their corruption and their unfaithfulness. Now they have embraced obedience to the Lord. Now they have arisen to serve the Lord. Now they will want to worship and praise the Lord who has rebuilt them that the city would stand and the city of God comes together to give praise to God. That is the real objective. A people who are able to have their shame shed because of the intervention of God and His divine protection as He grows them to the praise of the glory of His grace. When they assemble, they praise Him. When they disassemble, they praise Him. Whether they eat or drink or whatsoever they do, they do all to the glory of God. Thirdly, the clear and present danger that is before us. The clear and present danger before us is that we exist in a post-Christian. A post-Christian, maybe more rightly said, an anti-Christian culture at the moment. And it's very clear that the assault is on, whether it's the sanctity of life, the sanctity of marriage, the sanctity of sexuality, all of those things that God in His redeeming grace has, through His common grace, planted in our culture that has blessed us and, uh, and that it is all around us. Now, as we exist in that situation, the clear and present danger is to look to the wrong place for the answer. I want God to give this country continually godly leaders, presidents, senators, governors, everything. That's not the answer. I want us to have godly laws. That's not the answer. I'd love to have some godly media communication, some godly entertainment that honors what is right and virtuous and excellent. I'd love for all of those things to be there. But I know those things very seldom precede, they follow what is really the answer. Nehemiah understood something. The problem with the people was their shame and their distress and their unfaithfulness. It's like C.S. Lewis said when asked, what is the problem with the world? He said, it's simple, it's simple, madam. The problem with the world is me. I expect the world to act like the world. The problem today is the church is acting like the world. I know we're in the world. I don't want us to leave it. 
but I don't want it in us. That's why Nehemiah went to prayer and confession and repentance before he went to anything else. He understood the distress and shame of the people is what had rendered them impotent and had given courage to all the enemies. They were an exiled people that God had delivered, but less than a hundred years after that deliverance, their condition was right back into the place that had caused them to be exiled. And so there they were in distress and shame. So he said, I'll tell you what, we're going to take this wall, we're going to build this wall, but my bigger aim is not contiguous property, youth facilities. My bigger aim is not a children's worship center. Nehemiah would say, our bigger aim is that God's people will grow in the process, and then God's Word will so impact His people that they will deal with the grace of God and know what the grace of God does that takes you just where you are but refuses to let you stay where where you are, who blesses you freely and then transforms you gloriously. So something changes. And the world is attracted, not how much like them we are, but how much we love them and what God's grace does in someone's life. That's what attracts. And Nehemiah understood that. Now, Nehemiah was of the tribe of Judah and certainly a type of Christ. But praise the Lord. He's pointing us beyond himself, that is to Christ. Here's Nehemiah, a cupbearer, third powerful. Everything's comfortable. Got the king's ear. And he left it all to deliver a people who were in shame and distress. And he is only a faint reflection pointing us to the glorious Savior who left the riches of eternity and humbled himself to come and save us in our distress and our shame. And he is the wall of our deliverance. He is the one who saves us. And he is the one who delivers us from our shame and his corruption by the work of the cross, the glory of the resurrection, his present intercession, and the claims of his crown upon us, for he is Lord. Walls have a symbolic meaning. And of course, what you just heard, I don't have to explain from that. He says, man proposes, God disposes. Everything comes from God. When, when we follow the commandments, we become God's people. This is what our lady is trying to show us. We want good things. Reader was talking about all these things, the entertainment, all this, etc. But they don't proceed. They follow. We have to turn our life around. We have to follow our lady's messages. And change is in order. She is coming here for change. Once we understand that whole method, then this wall building around the family, around our nation, can speak to us. It brings order. From the earliest days, I always felt there's going to be a wall here. But perhaps it might be symbolic. I feel like it is solid and physical because it will represent something symbolic. And so there's a lot of lessons here to be learning. What we just heard was about fellowship with God. And if we have fellowship with a brother... 
They were in union with God. And I said on April 2nd, 2018, she said, My children, as apostles of my love, you must be united in the communion which emanates from my son. Their literal translation is, united in the fellowship which emanates from my son. But she goes on and says this, So that my children, who do not know my son, may recognize the fellowship is translated as communion, but that's not right. And that's what's out there. But the literal translation, for who do not know my son may recognize the fellowship of love and may come to desire to walk on the way of life. Through seeing your fellowship with each other. That's what restored to people. Fellowship is everything. This is dropped out of the message. It's a bad translation. And this bothers me when I see this translated this way. Because it's not correct. So the correct translation is what Pastor Reader was talking about of the fellowship. I would like to add to this because he's actually given this sermon because they're building a fellowship hall. We are building a mission that we have unstable monthly income because some donate, some doesn't, some skip once a month. We have a field angel program we built this mission on. It was inspired by Our Lady. We asked for 5,000 field angels. We had categories, $5, $10 a month, $25 a month, and $100 a month. They're in categories of guardian angel all the way to St. Michael. What we're asking for to stabilize this mission and to take off the shelf several spiritual projects that will save people, bring them to God, build the wall, and build a wall that costs money. And they make this a fortress of a place of conversion through the messages lived here that we transform into life for other people who see the fellowship here and want to walk that way. We've got the system, but we're very unbalanced in our field angel program. So we're launching it renewed. And all we ask is this, and I'm asking every one of you who listen to this, we ask you to get $5 a month automatic deducted so we don't have to handle thousands of envelopes. And we need, and we're going to launch 20,000 people to sign up. That's not much money. You won't even know it's missing. And we'd rather have $5 than $100 given one time because the $5 per month automatically deducted and you do that for 10 years is gives stability for us to plan our projects and pay our light bill. We have zero overhead in the sense of no financing, no money goes to interest. If we don't get the money, we don't do it. And literally, we have things sitting around waiting to convert people and save them from hell. We're basically in two languages. We're in English, and we've got over 100 pieces of material in Medjugorje and Croatian. We can go into 40 languages. Croatian was the first test for us. We knew I wrote this in English. We put these projects together in English, and we knew the effect was very profound for people changing and converting. The real test was when we transferred from English to another language to see if the culture would accept it. They wholeheartedly accepted in Croatian more than even in the English. We were surprised by this. 
We got throngs of people waiting for Italian. We got Portuguese. We got Polish, German, French, all the languages of the world. At least 10 major languages, we need to be doing this. We don't like the material. We don't like the material that has conversion in it. We know what will happen. So can you give $5 a month automatically and forget about it? Just let it stay there for the next 10, 20 years. We have to have a budget. We have to do this. We're sitting on this. And literally, there's people that would be safe from hell from your simple $5. If you can cover two people out of the 20,000 numbers we're trying to get, and you can give $10, do that if it's 15 But if you can't do anything like that, $15, do at least $5. If you're on Social Security, you still are required to tithe. You can afford that, even $5. It makes a difference. The way we're structured, we own our presses, we own the building, we own everything. No debt. We just had the monthly bills. We had the projects. We got the paper, which still is a lot of money. But $5 can produce 20 short books. If we can pay somebody full-time, 10 people running translations full-time, then we can get those books out there. You can do a lot with $5. I'm begging you to sign up for this. Joan, I know you sit here, you didn't do a read today, so if you got any comments. I guess what impressed me the most in listening to Pastor Reader is that it's he's detailing the way of life that Nehemiah set up, it really parallels the life that we live here in community in living the way of Our Lady through the leadership and vision of our founder. Pastor Reeder said that in Nehemiah's city that he was building, he recognized that God is sovereign. And they would pray, and he led the people to pray, God, give us the victory but the people had to go pick up their swords or their shovels, whatever the circumstances were, that the priority of prayer and fasting was number one. And fasting is not forgotten here, but is something lived here every Wednesday and Friday, that the primacy of the teaching and hearing and living the Word of God the words of Our Lady, we choose these words or open up these words to live every day in our lives. That worship of God in the assembly of coming together is lived here through our daily rosary when we go and we pray our daily rosary at the place that Our Lady sanctified. And we end that rosary with the words that our founder wrote, Holy, Holy, Holy God, I present myself to you. All my good deeds, my charity, my accomplishments as nothing, that we are to always see ourselves as sinners. This is what a friend of Medjugorje, our founder, has foundationed in us as community, not because of what he read in Nehemiah or Jeremiah or Isaiah or any of the prophets of the Old Testament or the New Testament, but it is because of what he has seen in the message of Our Lady. And it's profound to me that in looking and peering into the words of Our Lady, being taught by her, that the life of the New and Old Testament comes through and is lived by living the life of the message. And so in him asking for your, your support of this mission, it is to help to build the wall 
not only in this community, but in your family and in the communities around the world by bringing back to life the Word of God, the way of God through the way of Our Lady. So I'd like to end with giving you our phone number. And when you hear this, and when this finishes, that you call and commit the $5 a month. You can call 205-672-2000. You can replay this on your player if you didn't get the phone number. Most of you got material about Caritas. We need your $5 automatically deducted each month. We're going to go through a whole new effort to open up projects spiritually that has been sitting dormant for years. This is the time to act. So we leave you with this. And we need 100% participation. Spread it to other Medjugorje people and encourage them to do this $5 per month. We hope you are fed through this meal today in somewhat of an unorthodox way of what we usually do, but we think there's value. We wish you a lady. We love you. Goodbye. The subject matter contained in this presentation is based on biblical principles and designed to give you accurate and authoritative information with regard to the subject matter covered. It is provided with the understanding that neither the presenter nor the broadcaster is engaged to render legal, accounting, or other professional advice. Since your situation is fact-dependent, you may wish to additionally seek the services of an appropriately licensed legal, accounting, real estate, or investment professional. This ends the Medjinomics show with a friend of Medjugorje. To order this show on CD, you can contact Caritas in the U.S. at 205-672-2000. Again, 205-672-2000.